Hello, this is Ned Hallowell, and welcome to Dr. Hallowell's Wonderful World of Different. Today's show has special meaning to me because my guest, Dan Shaughnessy, is a hero of mine. So please forgive me while I gush for a bit. Even though he's a few years younger than I am, I've looked up to him for the 40 years he's been writing sports for the Boston Globe. Starting as a little boy in Chatham down on Cape Cod, I read the sports section with the dedication of a rabbinical scholar. I was and am to this day a crazy, rabid fan. And the men and women who tell the stories of the games were and are my guides, my interpreters, my prophets, my sages. By the time I got to college in the 1970s, the globe was changing how sports got written. Instead of just listing what happened in the game, the writers told stories, they inserted opinions, they joked around, and they engaged the reader much as a novelist would. As an English major, a career didn't jump up at me. I thought of becoming an English teacher, but my true wish was to write sports, like the people I read every day. But I knew I'd have to hustle and get lucky to make that life work for me. So I took the easy way out and went to medical school instead. As Yogi put it, when I came to a fork in the road, I took it. But today I get the chance to interview a man who took the fork I didn't take and followed it to the top of his profession, where he's been honored as Massachusetts Sports Writer of the Year 14 times and has more other honors than shoes by now. His latest book, Wish It Lasted Forever, Life with the Larry Bird Celtics, came out just in time for Christmas. I bought it yesterday and read it in one gulp. It's fantastic. It's a great pleasure, truly, for me to welcome Dan Shaughnessy to my wonderful world of different. So, Dan, since the theme is different, maybe we could start with talking about what's different about folks like me, sports fanatics, people who who go crazy <laughs> around sports. Well, it's interesting, uh, Doc. I mean, you and I live right around in the Boston area, and certainly where we live, man, uh, the passion is, I think, uh, different from almost anywhere. There's there's passionate sports fans, you know, in other places, especially college towns, Michigan, Ohio State, and, you know, Philadelphia and big cities. But we have, uh, I think, a, a different taste for it here where, where it's, it's, it's emotional, it's personal. And um, we have uh, institutional memory. We have really a lot of smart people. We pride ourselves in that. And they care about this. And, and if, for me, being a sports writer in this region, it's spectacular because people really care about the work that we're doing. It matters to them. They take it personally. I mean, I'm married to someone who is not a sports fan. She's a clinical psychologist and has zero knowledge of this world, uh, has never picked anything up. We had three adult children who were division one athletes in college and my wife got none of it. Um, so her involvement, she's aware that you can't live around here and not, not know what's going on. So uh, I, I tell her, she'll ask me what time the Patriot game is on Sunday. And I'll tell her that. And that tells her when she can go to the store to shop because she knows there won't be anybody there. So that's, uh, that's my wife's involvement. And it just shows you, how I think we're a little different in the the mania and and the the broad reach that sports brings to the region. I mean, your column is known for being you know very uh, pointed, and and so you you must get really angry mail sometimes. Yeah, people again. Yeah, you know, we're in a very political divided time here. Right. And in in Boston, the the divisions are 
always there with sports. And, you know, we used to say sports, politics and revenge makes the place go here. And <laughs> and when when you have these little dust ups, people choose sides. This goes back. I remember when when Bill Parcells left the Patriots and Bob Kraft got mad at him and everybody took a side. You're either with Parcells or you're with Kraft, you know, this kind of thing. And and this would go on with Manny Ramirez or Pedro Martinez or Kurt Schilling. I mean, people, most recently, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. Like, which side are you on? You on the Belichick camp or the Brady camp? And people, they care about it. They care about it more than their own families in some instances. It can be a little unhealthy, I would say, but it's certainly passionate. To to me, what's what's refreshing about it is it it really doesn't matter. So so you can have... you can have these really strong feelings and hate people and all that, but it, after all is said and done, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Thank you, Doc. That's the beauty of it, that you and I should be able to disagree about Manny Ramirez or Antonio Brown or Tom Brady. Right. And still go out and have a beer and have a good time because it right. doesn't matter at the end of the day. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. But but it, it does matter so deeply to us. I mean, I I used to get it. It used to be bad. I would get really depressed after the Patriots lost. And since they were always losing, it meant for a lot of depression. (laughs) You were saying in the book, you know, you grew up, as I did, with losing teams, with the exception of the Celtics. And we we had the Celtics that could could carry us along. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, who are some of the most eccentric pro athletes you covered i suppose i thought of that based on antonio brown's performance yesterday sure. but, you know but the i mean we've had a lot of characters come through here i'm old enough to remember bill lee the pitcher for the red sox yes. left-handed pitcher. Yes. he was he was left-handed in every sense of the word and still <laughs> is I, I just saw him a couple weeks ago and he's still out there um you know sprinkling marijuana on his pancakes and and you know i mean he was he was the only guy who when they'd go to yankee stadium he would talk about security there as the steinbrenner brown shirts it's not a that's something that most baseball players would make those kinds of references you know he's a fan of hunter thompson and those kinds of things so that he was a really a different character altogether and you know when you're a sports writer you like those kinds of guys because they kind of light up the page for you and carl everett was he uh Carl Everett was different, and I think he was involved in your world somewhat. I think he could have used professional help. Uh, I don't know that he got what he needed there. And I, I always thought that his um, his his eruptions seemed to come in, in I call them nut clusters. They'd be these bursts of, you know, within a few days, there'd be several of these episodes where he'd be headbutting the umpire or confronting one of the writers or a teammate, and, and guys were afraid of him. Yeah. And uh, he needed to uh, he needed to go straighten things out elsewhere. I don't know what became of him, but yeah, that was a he, he was very kind of a menacing guy. And the weird part is, and you deal with this in your everyday work, but he was a very smart, cha- charming guy. Yeah, he was a freehand cartoonist and wow. obviously a great athlete, had a lot of skills. Wow. And and you know you wouldn't know he had this dark side to him, except for these occasional, like I said, these occasional outbursts. Now, what separates him from someone like Earl Weaver, who would have eruptions, but they were more like planned eruptions, weren't they? Right. Well, the beauty of Earl Weaver was that he didn't hold grudges and he had a quick, he forgot things very quickly. So he would take you to the woodshed and air you out, but then, you know, crack open a beer and say, you know, let's let's do something else and, and move on from that. And he was very funny. It's very instructive. He was a, considerably older than me and I already had a Hall of Fame resume when I came on to cover the Orioles. So that was a great blessing for me to be kind of educated under the tutelage of these, you know, these, these crotchety old bastard baseball guys. And, and he was one of them, but it was a very, 
it was a lot of education. I was 23 years old when I went on the road with the Orioles as a writer. Wow. And there was a lot to absorb in a, in a quick amount of time to, to get caught up. But by and large, you know, I think if you're young and, and you listen and, and you uh, are interested, people like to tell stories. It's a very seductive thing to say, tell me your story. And, and, and you know, I've, I've made a career out of just asking people to tell their stories and most people want to do it. So someone like Billy Martin, was he the same cloth? Billy Martin, I got along well with Billy Martin. It was pretty clear that he had, you know, substance abuse issues. He was an alcoholic. I mean, yeah. Billy would say, I'm not an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in two days. <laughs> like, Wait a minute. What, <laughs> what are we doing here? And uh, you know, the difference with a lot of those guys was whether it was uh, during or after the game. And I, with Weaver, it was always after. With Billy, I sometimes wondered. And there were, there were managers – other in other areas that I, I was, it was clear to me that there was a problem during work hours, uh -huh. which would be different from after work hours. And Weaver managed to hold that line pretty well. And they hated each other. There was a lot of uh, really uh, ego and uh, competitiveness. That and then um, uh, old Jimmy Pearsall uh, hiding behind the flagpole, but but he had a genuine mental illness, right? Correct, Jimmy Pearsall. I, I'm not sure whether he went to McLean or wherever, but he went to a a place to be treated while he was playing for the Red Sox. And, you know, he was a really, uh, he was a broadcaster when I came along and I had seen the movie Fear Strikes Out with Anthony right. Perkins and right. I, um, another famous actress in that, I uh, can't remember his name. Yeah. Anyway, Jimmy Pearsall in real life was a very charming guy, a good storyteller. And and so as a, as a young person, again, we would just ask those guys to tell us stories. And Jimmy Pearsall was a lively, fun guy, and, and you probably didn't want to be around him too late at night after too many cocktails. <laughs> Even active players, like, wasn't Mantle and Whitey Ford, wouldn't they uh, put a few drinks away? Yes, there was a, yeah, Mickey Mantle had a, you know, he, he thought he was going to die young, and he had a, he was a big-time drinker. Martin was, Mantle was, Ford was, and Mickey, you know, he, he ruined his liver. He had a liver transplant, wow. and then he got cancer after that, but he had a, a very, you know, he didn't last as long as he should have. And when he got off the booze, geez, he was a wonderful guy. He was a very humble guy. I had a great interview with him for like an hour. He was promoting a book one time and, and I met him at a hotel downtown Boston. And it was after he had quit drinking and, and before he got really sick. And it was just a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful time with him. I remember him talking. I was trying to explain to him the effect. He never really understood why all these you know older men would come around and point point to him with their sons and say, that's Mickey Mantle. And he was like, he felt embarrassed by that, but he, he profited off it to go to card shows and do all that. And then we were talking in this hotel and, and he told me he was on a tour with other famous ball players to sign baseball memorabilia. And he said, Stan Musial called me the other day and invited me to breakfast. And he said, can you imagine that Stan Musial called me up to go to breakfast? Wow. And I said, Mickey Mantle, that, that's it right there. That's what they're doing. And you're doing it now with Stan Musial because he was your guy when you were a young guy in Hannibal, yeah. Missouri or Oklahoma, yeah. wherever the hell he was from. But yeah. yeah, so everybody's got him and Mickey Mantle had him, but he just he never was able to sort of translate that to, to his own effect on people. But so he was genuinely humble. He was genuinely humbled and so, so happy that, that Stan Musial would would invite him to breakfast. He really, really overwhelmed him. Wow. Whereas Joe DiMaggio was not so humble, huh? I wasn't around him a lot, but he was very, um, very hard to get. He had kind of a force field around him, like a do not disturb sign. Uh, and I, I respected that. And I was told, uh, uh, Edward Bennett Williams, I knew the trial attorney, he owned the Orioles. And when David Halberstam did his book on the summer of 49, he talked to, you know, 
Ted Williams at great length and, and all those old Yankees from the 49 Red Sox Yankee rivalry, Bobby Doyle. That's how David got into the teammates book. And, and the Yankees, you know, they were all good to him, except DiMaggio would not return his calls, wouldn't do it. And, and Mr. Williams tried to intervene on behalf and, uh, he wouldn't do it. And David wrote this lovely explanation in his book about how DiMaggio had given us his game and that would have to be enough. And he respected that and, <laughs> and let it go. But very diverse personalities, DiMaggio and Williams. One was outgoing and one was not. Yeah. I know from reading you that you have a lot of respect for other writers. Uh, right at the top of the list, would you put Ray Fitzgerald? Oh, my God. Well, I've, uh, let's show you since we're on TV here. These little things here are these little cubes. And yeah. It's uh, the, the hot type, cold type. But that's Ray Fitzgerald's cube. Oh, so my I God. The, I was in the composing room in 1973 or four in the summer when I was the summer worker at the Globe. And uh, one of the nice older guys took me down to the show them how they set the hot type. And they had the cubes of all the columnists down there, Bud Collins and Ray Fitzgerald and Lee Montville and yeah. I just I just picked up one of Ray's cues, put it in my pocket, and I've had it on my desk ever since. I've got both of his books up there on the shelf, and and uh, attended Ray's funeral. And uh, again, died too soon when he's in his early fifties. That was in the early eighties. We lost Ray. He had four children. I became friends with a couple of them, and he was my idol. So he was the best in my view. Really, really. I mean, was it his writing style that really was? Everything about Ray was was uh, was was was. He was well-crafted. He was a genuine. He was a good sport. And he was very good to the young people. And he just, he lit up the page. He just came off the page. He had humor. He had compassion. He was an elegant writer. He had been a great athlete. He played baseball at Notre Dame. He was a left-handed okay. hit first baseman wow. from Western Massachusetts. And he was a very humble guy, very self-deprecating, and was great to young people. And I was very blessed to have come under his tutelage. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. You, another one you who died suddenly you know was nick cafardo and and you oh, had a boy. you had a lot of feelings about him well that was one of the worst days ever that was uh february 19th uh 2019 if i remember correctly but it was the middle of the week and we were in fort myers and my friend stan grossfeld the great photographer was right. was uh, with nick at the ballpark and i was not at the park that day and and uh stan and i got to the hospital and when we lost Nick and we sat, we, I, we sat with him all day. And I, I, I literally wrote Nick's obituary sitting next to him, you know, because there was no family down there and we had to wait until they got there. Wow. And it was a very emotional day and, and not one that you, you get past. And he was way too young and loved baseball. And he's in the Hall of Fame where he should be. And that was a big loss for us. And the way you write about him, he, he just so genuine and giving and, yeah. you know, and hardworking and always there, went to all the, you know, that's, uh, he, you, you make them come to life. It's, it's, yeah, he loved baseball. And, you know, that was right after the Red Sox had won the World Series in LA in 2018. And that was that ridiculous seven hour game when 18 innings, whatever. Yes. And, and, you know, it was get it was getting kind of tired. It was a Friday night and we were missing all of our additions and, and they just kept making out and like, okay, on to the 15th, on to the 16th. And I had pretty much had enough. And Nick just turned and said, isn't this the greatest? More baseball. <laughs> You're out of your mind, Nicky. 
<laughs> you all were praying for rain or something. And yeah. Pardo's in, in, in his element. <laughs> he loved it. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's wonderful. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's, is there a real uh, fraternity amongst you all? I, I, it seems to me there is when I read you guys, but, um, and ladies. Well, this is one of the things we've lost during the pandemic, but certainly over the years, I mean, I've been uh, traveling with teams since the late seventies. And certainly I, I, it's one of the great parts of being a newspaper guy, a media guy, a sports media guy is, is the other people that are doing it and the travel that you do together and the off, off hours you spend and the storytelling, you know, staying up late after games and telling stories. And that's what we do in the paper. And that's what we do in our, in our social lives and in our travel lives. And I, it's like being in college again, sitting around the dorm, just swapping stories with, with other people that are like-minded. And, and I, I miss that. That's something that we've lost in the last couple of years. I mean, a lot of people have lost really serious things and I understand that, but right. in my profession, that's certainly something that's, that's not there anymore. It's a lot more isolating and we're not together and we're watching TV and trying to right. cobble this stuff together as opposed to being there and interacting with everybody. So that that's a little bit of a loss and it's a loss for the readers. You're not, you know, like people don't know what's going on with the Celtics right now because there's nobody there to tell you. And, right. You know, we don't know who likes who and who likes the coach. And right. it's just you just watch them and they're like this this enigma, this mystery. Right. Well, you know, like that book you just read, Wish It Lasted Forever. In those days, we could tell you what was going on. Oh, we it was with wonderful. Them every day. It was so wonderful. right now yeah. that that that's lost and it's a loss to the fans and the readers. There's a lot of guessing going on in the media these days because no one's around to, to tell you what's happened. I got to tell you, you listeners, you should get Dan's book, Wish It Lasted Forever. It's, it's so colorful. It's so vivid. And, you know, stories like he, he had a foul shooting contest with Larry Bird where Larry Bird taped his taped his whole hand and, and, they were, and he bet Dan five dollars a shot. And, and it was this critical moment. So they started off pretty even. And then Larry suddenly says, I got this. And then he just started, you tell the rest of it. He just, everyone went in after that. I was just, I wasn't even moving, just catching the ball coming through the net. He said, I got this figured out. And he did. And I was out $160. And if you see Larry Bird at this very day and ask him, what did you take Scoop Shaughnessy for 37 years ago? He'll tell you, I got 160 extra dollars in my pocket. (laughs) He was notoriously, uh, pecunious wasn't he <laughs> very frugal yeah there was one night it's in the book where at the end of the night i reached for my wallet he said i got this and i'm like it was like a total eclipse of the sun you know oh, it's just a, like, a weird thing to see but yeah larry was very he grew up poor never lost that hunger that made him great one of the things that made him great yeah. and uh he retained that to this day what i love about you guys is there's so much color you're uh i i got to know will mcdonough uh, we were actually going to write a book and, and uh, then the, the guy had to up and die. But uh, yeah. he was he was such a colorful figure, didn't you think? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, there was nobody like Will McDonough. And uh, again, I was fortunate. Those guys were very nice to me. Will was, you know, for me, Willie liked you if you were Irish Catholic from anywhere. So, you know, <laughs> I come in, I went to Holy Cross and I, I didn't even know I was Irish. So I got to to Boston, but I uh, beg to differ. He wouldn't be nice to you if he didn't really like you. He he was just good to the young people. He talked to the co-ops in Northeast and everybody was there. He was really helpful. And, you know, he came up the hard way and was harder and he really knew sports. He understood it. He had, he had the sources, people talked to him. He knew what he was seeing. And he was just a critical, great sports reporter who got scoops left and right. 
And I used to answer his phone a lot of times and everybody would be calling. You know, you'd have Commissioner of Football on line one and O.J. Simpson on line two and the owner of the Raiders on line three and yeah. everybody calling Willie to tell him what was going on. Amazing. Yeah, it was, it was it's so sad that he uh, uh, but his son has carried on his name very well. Yeah, well, I mean, Sean is, is a great broadcaster. Another son, Terry, is a general manager, I think, with the Baltimore Ravens. And is he? his other son, Ryan, was general manager of the Phoenix Suns. And I'm not sure. But so all three boys were involved in, in the sports world. And his daughter was a great track star, went to Harvard. Another daughter works in the medical community. So, yeah, the, all five of them are doing great. Am I am I right in saying there's more room for difference in the sports world than there than there was, uh, oh, 30, 40 years ago? I think that uh, like a lot of things, it's it's probably it might be more slow moving than than some parts of society. But I think that uh, certainly, you know, if a, like, for instance, if a player like comes out as homosexual or something now, I don't think it's it moves the needle very much anymore. Right. Right. In terms of he's going to be scorned in the clubhouse. There are some cultural things that, that are ongoing, depending on where people are from. And when I think of that, a lot of it's international issues where people, people maybe aren't quite as accepting. I think that the race issue that sports does it almost better than anybody. Yeah, because it's I mean, I've never been in the military, but you talk to people who served and and that, you know, when you're in that foxhole, the guy next to you, you you don't really care what color he is because right. you gotta he's gonna might save your save your ass and and right. talking to ball players just that if a guy can help you and he plays hurt and he's a good teammate you like that guy yeah. and uh so it really does have more potential to be colorblind and to be progressive in that area i think than some other elements of society because teamwork is teamwork and when you get into the team sports i think it's it's really an advantage to have that mentality so the so the the fact that it's a team and you're depending on one another makes yeah. all the other differences invisible. I think so. I mean, you know, there's always going to be stuff of where you were raised and where you're from, and and guys have baggage here and there. But I see way less of that than you used to, and and uh, you know, and I think that um, like the African American population, certainly in basketball and football, these guys have been on college campuses. They may not have graduated, no matter. I mean, not a lot of them don't, but just ball players who are exposed to that environment, you just learn social mores and, and good manners and and how to behave. And I think that in particularly in basketball and football, you find a lot of uh, African-American guys who really are they they they're very respectful. And I think that, you know, hockey players in general are respectful. Yeah. And it's just. When you talk to media people, they'll tell you the sports that have the most respectful players. And baseball comes up a little short in that area because a lot of guys are small town guys and they they never go to the college atmosphere. And I think it's it's good for everybody to be around that. And uh, you talk to you talk to female reporters and how they're treated. They'll generally tell you they like the way they're treated more in, in basketball and football and, and hockey than in baseball. It's just a cultural thing. Were you surprised and impressed that the NFL came out endorsing Black Lives Matter? I was not surprised. I I, I think at the juncture we were in the country, you know, and, and given the, the population of the locker rooms at this point, if you're an owner of a team, you got to be crazy to not be supportive there. And yeah. uh, uh, this is your workforce. 
and you have to be respectful. And, and of course, that, that got into a real interesting dilemma for them because so many of them are friends with the president at that time who right. was you know, calling them sons of bitches and right. saying they should fire these guys and right. you know, conflating kneeling with anti-military and just a lot of the nonsense that went on. But I thought that, I thought that the NFL owners did a pretty good job standing up there and you got to treat these guys like adults. You got to treat all of your players like men, like smart men, because they, they'll reward you if you do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so uh, that, that's uh, my daughter works for the NFL. So she, I sort of, I, I was very proud of her. Well, Dan, I could, I could talk to you all afternoon and into the night. You're, you're endless, uh, source of uh, stories and inspiration. One last question. What advice because a lot of listeners are wondering, you know, younger people with with learning differences and whatnot. If someone has their eyes set as I did, uh, a career in, in sports writing, what kind of advice would you give them? It's just changed so much since I was a young person. With, yeah. The landscape has changed. I would I would invite advise them to talk to younger people than myself. Yeah. But there's a lot more platforms now. I mean. You know, there aren't the, the broadsheet newspapers, you know, that that's going away. We understand right. that. But there's always going to be a need for news gathering and storytelling. And it's just going to be parsed out in different platforms. Yeah. And it's kind of up to the young people to figure that out. You know, talk to young people about the branding, creating your own brand, you know, blogging, tweeting, whatever it goes on. It's a lot of stuff, Instagramming, I don't understand. But you, know, you see people sort of branching out, creating their own brand. I just I would ask that you try to get out and do your own work, independent sourcing, primary sourcing, talk to people, go out and tell the world what you see around you and talk to people to learn about it. Do not sit at home and, and aggregate other people's stuff. That was, that, me, that was McDonough's big uh, gripe. He'd say these reporters who want to report by not leaving the office, he'd say, you know, you can't do that. Well, it's gotten worse because of the internet. And the ability to never leave the house and to be clever and, and put words together well, that's not enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, tell me something about what's around you. When I hear from kids at a kid at UConn, you know, I want to know what's going on at UConn. Don't tell me what you think of the Celtics. I don't right. give a shit what you think of the Celtics. You're 19 right. years old. Tell me what's going on with UConn. Tell me right. something you know. Right. Say what you know. Well, it's great advice, and and you really are a, you're an amazing man, and and I don't want to embarrass you and go on about it, but uh, you you mean a lot to this town and and to this region and and to the nation in terms of being a leader in in your field and and uh, and uh, uh, just let me say thank you so much on behalf of all the people who read you and look up to you and care about you. You you you've done an amazing job, and I, I just can't thank you enough. Well, it's a pleasure to be here on your podcast. I wish you well with the talk, and uh, I'll come back again sometime. And, and thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks a million, Dan. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. My thanks to Dan Shaughnessy, columnist for the Globe and all around spectacular writer about sports and and human being in general. If any of you have show ideas for people you'd like us to have on, or topics you'd like us to take up please just send us an email to different at hallowellcenter.org. That's different, the word different, at hallowellcenter.org. We love to hear from you. We need to hear from you. We're, we're trying to grow, and the way we'll do that best is, is through you all. So please send us an email, show idea, comment, criticism, praise, whatever you've got. We'd love to hear it. 
uh, different at hallowellcenter.org. And thanks so much for listening. And once again, thanks to Dan Shaughnessy. This is Ned Hallowell saying goodbye for now. <laughs>